Welcome to Southside Presbyterian Church. The following sermon was taken from our Sunday gathering. If you'd like to find out more, or if we can help you on your journey in faith, head to our website, www.southsidepc.org, or visit us any Sunday morning at 9am. I mentioned before we're on a journey through the New Testament letter of 1 Corinthians and we're up to chapter 9. I'm going to read, uh, Ben will be preaching through the whole of the chapter, but I just want to read from you from verse 19. This is the Apostle Paul and he's been talking to uh, this new young church about their freedoms and their rights and what they do with their freedoms and rights. This is what he says from chapter 9 from verse 19. Though I am free and belong to no one, I've made myself a slave to everyone, to win as many as possible. To the Jews I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law I became like one not having the law, although I'm not free from God's law, but I am under Christ's law so as to win those not having the law. To the weak I become weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. Good morning, everyone. Welcome uh, to church this morning. If we haven't met before, my name's Ben, uh, and it is great that we can gather together and continue going in this series. Uh, So we're going to pray again and ask that God would speak to us, and then we'll get into this. Let's pray. Um, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the privilege and the joy it is to gather today. Uh, Thank you already for what we've experienced and enjoyed this morning. Um, We pray now as we open up your word that you would speak to us. Um, Help us, Lord, put aside the things that we're carrying, the burdens, um, the the things that are distracting us. and, And may we for a moment sit in your word and be transformed by it. We pray this for your glory and the good of your people. In Jesus' name. Amen. Did you know that the term worship leader has been trademarked? So this came out earlier this year that you can no longer use the word worship leader without someone being on your case about it. Now, if you don't know what a worship leader is, um, here at Southside, we usually just use the term song leader, but lots of churches use this term to describe the person up front who's leading us through the song. So this morning, that was Ben. Um, In churches, you might say that he's the worship leader. Well, this term has been trademarked, um, somewhat ironically, by a company called Authentic Media, have trademarked this term. um, And And basically their idea is uh, they've got a magazine called Worship Leader. It's their term and they're making sure no one else can use it. Now, this is not a problem for us because we don't even use that word that much anyway. It doesn't really affect us all that much. But it is a problem for some people. Um, In fact, there was a meme page on Facebook called Rogue Worship Leader that has now been sued because of the title in their name. Their account got suspended and uh, they're in the courts trying to figure this all out. Like I said, it's not a problem for us, but it is a problem for some people. Now, as I heard this story, um, again, I, I, I wasn't worried about anything. But as I heard this story, I couldn't help but feel like this is just another story that stinks of Christians or churches trying to get money, right? Does that not? I mean, why else are you trademarking the term worship leader? I mean, what's next? Are they going to, am I no longer be able to 
called a pastor? Is that what's going to happen soon? Are we going to have to figure out a new way for that? I mean, there's lots of terms that we use all around the place. Doesn't this just smell of a a Christian or a church trying to make more money? And And then when you consider it, this just adds fuel to the fire of everything that we see at the moment. I mean, every week in the media, there's a new story about a church trying to make more money. And then you add that on top of people's individual experiences within churches that sometimes feel like they're trying to make more money. I mean, you might have come into church this morning, you got an envelope maybe in your service sheet. We haven't even spoken about that. So potentially there's a feeling that even our church is here for your money. When you consider all of this sort of stuff, the perception is the church exists to make more money. And so this would be a problem. And so what we're going to do this morning is just think about this for a moment. We want to recenter ourselves, refocus ourselves, and think about this question, why does the church exist? What is the church here for? I mean, why is it that people would gather every week to, to gather in a place like this called the church? Why does the church exist? This is what we're going to think about this morning uh, as we open up God's Word. And to find the answer to that, we're going to go to the Bible. And the reason for that is the Bible is the best. It's one of those books, the more you read it, the more you enjoy it, the more beautiful it gets. And we're going to go to the Bible because the Bible tells us everything we need to know about life and God. It's interesting. I don't know if you've realized this, but lots of people have opinions on the Bible, right? Um, Everyone's got an opinion on the Bible, but not that many people have actually read it. And so what we're going to do is we're going to read it. We're going to look at it. We're going to dig into God's Word. And we're going to do that in this chapter, in the whole of chapter 9. And we're not just coming at this fresh. I mean, this is a part of a series. We've looked at 1 to 8 so far. And we're into chapter 9 where we're going to be asking this question, why does the church exist? And we're going to see Paul lay out for us three reasons why the church is here. And so we pick it up in chapter 9, verse 1, where it begins with, and you've got a sense here, it begins with, it's not about a leader or a status or money, it's about Jesus. And so, so we see this as we pick it up from chapter 9, verse 1. He says this, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who sit in judgment of me. Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? Or is it only I and Barnabas who lack the right to not work for a living? So why does the church exist? Well, we're going to see, first and foremost, it exists not for a leader, not for an apostle, not for money. It exists for Jesus. That's what we're going to see. But to feel the weight of what Paul is saying, he establishes what's going on in this church. And, and the problem in this church is to do with apostleship. Okay, So that's the language that you heard read out there. But apostle simply means someone who's seen Jesus um, and God established to establish the church. So an apostle is essentially one of the very first pastors of the church. Okay, And and so Paul wants them to see that it's not about his apostleship, it's about Jesus, but he wants to help them kind of ground themselves a little bit with what's going on in the church because they don't think he's an apostle. So so that's what it means there when they sit on judgment on him. They don't think he's an apostle. And, And the reason for that is because he's not acting like an apostle. So you get a sense of that there. He's not doing what the other apostles do. He's not eating certain food and drink. He's not taking a believing wife. But, but the main issue for this church in this moment is to do with pay. Okay? He's not getting paid like the other apostles. And, and so Paul's saying, guys, I, I am still an apostle despite the fact that I'm not taking your pay. 
But he, he does want to spell this out for them and, and sit with this idea for a moment, this idea to do with pay. Okay, so, so the Corinthians have a simple maths. This is their simple maths. If you're not getting paid, you must not be an employee. Okay, that's, that's the idea. Since Paul's not being paid as an apostle, then he must not be an apostle. But Paul wants to spell this out. Okay, and so what he's going to do is he's going to tell them why he's not taking their money. But first, he's going to tell them why he gets paid. Okay, why, why he should get paid. Now, uh, if you're new to church here this morning, um, this is really why churches sometimes ask for money. Okay, so we're going to see four reasons here. And you'll see, I think it's pretty logical. It's not to make the, the apostle rich. It, most of the points make complete sense. Okay, and Paul's going to spell out his right, and then he's going to say why he doesn't. But let's have a look at this, the four reasons why churches sometimes might ask for money. The, the first reason is logical. He says, who, who, he, who serves as a soldier at his own expense, who plants a vineyard and does not eat its grape, who, who tends a flock and does not drink the milk. And, and Paul's point here is people get paid for what they do. And, and that happens outside of a church, and that should happen in a church, and it should happen so that the apostles can eat their food. right? It, it does make sense, I think, just logically here, a soldier doesn't serve at his own expense. A farmer gets to eat the grapes, a shepherd gets to drink some milk, there should be some fruit from your labor. That just makes logical sense. N number two, the second point, uh, it's in the Bible. So uh, in the Old Testament particularly, we see this uh, in verse 9, it says there, Was it not written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain? A and the picture here is that um, in, in sort of the I don't know, you go to farms, think of farming, an ox would trample on the grain, but they wouldn't muzzle an ox, they'd let the, the ox eat the grain as the ox was working. And the point is, um, this was not written for ox, this was written for oxen, this was written for us, that we can recognize that if you work, you should be able to eat as well. Again, I think that's pretty logical, that makes sense, that, that's in the Old Testament. The, the next point is, there's Old Testament precedent. Verse 13, don't you know that those who serve at the temple get their food from the temple? The idea in the Old Testament was that the priests weren't meant to work somewhere else. They were meant to work in the temple, and so they can eat from the temple. And then, and the fourth reason is because in verse 14, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. He's saying Jesus said it. Jesus said that the apostles should get paid so that they can eat their food. Now, I think when you look at those four reasons, that all of that makes pretty much sense, right? You know, that, that those who work should get paid so that they can eat their food. It's not about churches getting rich. It's not about an apostle getting rich. It's just so that they can eat their food, right? The, the heart is not money, but of course we know that money does buy your food. And so what Paul is saying is pay the apostles so that they can get the food. Now, uh, quickly, there is some application for us as we think about this. We don't have apostles. We wouldn't say, um, I'm an apostle or Ross is an apostle. Um, there is some application for churches as they think about pastors. Uh, in God's Timing this week, there was an article on Desiring God by a guy called John Piper, who's a you know, was a Christian pastor, written some good stuff. He had this line this week that I think captures the vibe of what Paul's saying here. Uh, here's his line. Um, don't call, that is don't hire a pastor who's trying to get rich and don't be a church that's trying to keep him poor. I think that's kind of the heart of what Paul's saying here when he's speaking about apostleship and churches and when it comes to money, this is sort of the heart here. Pay the apostles so they can get the money, uh, so they can have money to buy food. That's at the heart of it. But in this passage, while Paul is speaking about why he has the right to get paid, right? so he's just laid out a foundation why he should get paid and could get paid, 
What's interesting is Paul doesn't get paid. Right? That, that's fascinating here. It, twice he says this. So you can see this in uh, verse 12. He says, if others have this right, uh, shouldn't we? Sorry, that's verse 11. Uh, he says this twice. So, sorry, I'm a bit lost. He says, we, we're not taking this right. But verse 15, let's just have a look at this one. But I have not used any of these rights. Paul is saying he's not taking their money. In fact, at one point he says, I'd rather die than take your money. So he's establishing the reality that he could take their money, but he's not taking their money. Now, it is fascinating that he's speaking at length about why he could have taken this right, but he doesn't. He doesn't take this right. He's showing he's the exception. So why is it that Paul doesn't take their money? Why is it that Paul doesn't take their money despite the fact that he could have? Well, let's have a look. He, he says this right here in verse 18. What then is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge. Paul is saying he is an apostle. He could take the right. There's four reasons there, logically, from the Bible, precedent. Jesus said it. However, he's not going to take their money. Why is that? Because he wants to present the gospel free of charge. For, for Paul, at the very beginning, at the establishment of the church, he wants to make it very clear that the church is not here for money. Right? The church does not exist for money. The, the apostles do not exist for money. The pastors do not exist for money. The church is here to present the gospel free of charge. Which raises the question, well, what is the gospel? Well, why is Paul banging on about the gospel? Why, why would he forego money for the sake of the gospel? Well, well, this is where we understand the gospel, and it's worth thinking about this for a moment. You, you see, gospel is this word that sometimes is a little bit jargony. Sometimes we even sing about the gospel, um, but we don't necessarily know what the gospel means. But, but gospel literally means good news. Okay? That's what gospel means. Uh, the word, if you were to translate it to the English, it means good news. But it's, it's more than just good news. It's the type of news that would make you dance in the street. Now, you think, what news would make me dance in the street? Right? Not much. Right? Like, I mean, you know, you might have gone through lots of good things in your life but never danced in the street. But there are some things that we can understand would, would cause this to happen. So if you think about Ukraine at the moment and the war going on, you know, it's been over 400 days since they've been in war. That's, that's crazy. The war-torn country, you've got war, you've got despair, you've got death all around. Well, if you lived in Ukraine and you got the message that the war was over, you see what I mean? Like if you got the message the war was over, that would be peace where there's war. That would be hope where there's despair. That would be life where there's death. And if you lived in Ukraine, if that was your life for the last 400 years, that would be the type of news that would make you dance in the street. Right? Like you would, you would go and celebrate with everyone around. Well, the Bible, when it uses the word gospel, is trying to capture this, the, the essence of this. So, so why is it so good? Why is the gospel so good that it would cause you to dance in the street? Well, it, it's because while we don't live in war, our reality is despair and death. You know, when we think about the world that we live in, I think all of us would recognize that we do actually live in a world where it's not perfect. You know, like uh, we have sayings like, such is life. It's a saying to capture the essence that bad things happen. We know that the best things end. We know that despair and death are all around us. And we try and ignore it. We try and push death out of our, of our society. But I think we do know that things are not the way that potentially they should be. 
But see, this is the good news. Where there's despair and where there's death, God did not abandon the world. God did something about this. You see, the world under the curse of sin, uh, God didn't abandon the world. Instead, he came up with a solution to fix it. Humanity consistently rejected and ignored God, but God did not abandon it. He came into the world to fix this problem. And Jesus, in a real time and place in history, came into the world. God in the flesh. And he proved himself with signs and wonders and miracles. And then humanity did what they've always done. They rejected God. They ignored God. And Jesus died on a cross. But this moment when Jesus died on the cross, this was not an abandonment. This was not that God had abandoned Jesus in some weird way. No, this was the great reversal. This was where the living God was taking our place so that we could have life. This is where God was facing despair and death so that we could go free and have hope and life forever. This is the good news. And, and when Jesus died and rose again, what he said was, if you believe in Jesus, you can have the hope of eternal life forever. The, the gospel, right? The good news that you can have hope where there's despair and life where there is death. And Paul is saying in the church in Corinth, he's saying, I would die than take your money because I want you to know the gospel free of charge. I want you to know that the living God did something to fix the broken world and despair and death and give you hope. And this is what Paul says he's all about. And, and this is what the church should be all about. We should be all about Jesus. And this is why we exist. So if you ever go to a church, even if it's ours, and Jesus isn't mentioned or spoken about, there's a problem here. Because the church exists to be about Jesus. And we want to be all about Jesus. We want to be all about the good news of Jesus, that there is hope and life and assurance. So, so the first thing when we think about this is the church is about Jesus. Now, there is an encouragement here today if you're a follower of Jesus and a part of this church. I mean, we've been speaking a bit about family this morning. There's a deep encouragement here that we exist and we are all about Jesus. And I think it's worth remembering the good news of Jesus. We never want to stray away from the good news of the gospel. We want to hold on to that and remember that. But of course, there's an encouragement here today. If this is your first time or first time in a long time, to, to just recognize that the church is not about your money. To be very clear, we don't want your money. We don't want you to put anything in the envelope. Put that back at the front or leave it in your chair or whatever. We want you to know that we exist to be about Jesus. And we want you to know Jesus. It's the best thing ever. And the reality is the church exists to be about Jesus. So, so number one, what's the church about? Number one, it's all about Jesus. Number two, as we keep reading though, we see that it's all about other people. So let's have a look. And I love the logic here, here from Paul. Like, if the good news is really good, then of course it means that you should tell others about that. And this is where he goes. Verse 19, he says, Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law but under Christ's law, so as to win those having the law. To the weak I became weak, to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. And I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. Paul is saying here that he is about other people. He's others-centered. And, and, and when we see this, of course, the church too, we too should be about other people. We should be other-centered. 
You know, this was the model that Jesus gave us when he laid his life down. He was showing us that this is the model. We live for other people and we're other-centered. But of course, to be truly other-centered is difficult. You know, I don't know if you've ever considered this, but the, like if you consider your motives, I reckon even at the best of times, sometimes there's selfish motives lying there as well. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever done something truly good that was actually purely selfish? I think this happens so much of the time. Our motivations can be so mixed. To be truly other-centered is really difficult. In fact, uh, to test this, we're going to test this this morning, if you've ever done something truly other-centered, because there is a test. It's called the shopping trolley theory. Okay, and, and this is online. You can read about this if you want. This is the test to see if you are a good person. Okay, now here's the test. Right, you picture yourself, you go to the shops, you buy your stuff, you put it in the trolley, you come to your car, you empty the trolley. What do you do next? Right, what do you do next? Empty trolley, what do you do? Because one of those decisions is morally right. Are you going to put the trolley back? That is the morally right decision, but it's complicated because it doesn't benefit us in any way. There's no benefit to me putting the trolley back. And, and more than that, I don't think it's illegal to not do it. You know, you never see police at, the, at your car writing tickets because you haven't put the trolley back. So what do you do? If you return the trolley, you are a good person. And if you don't, well... It's not me. It's the article. Now, look, I, I think it is just a bit of fun to test our motives. And to be honest, right, I, I want to be clear about this. And I'm not going to name names, but there are people very close to me that may or may not return their trolleys. And I'm not going to name them, but we're working on our marriage and <laughs> try to figure all that out. Look, I, I, again, I mean, there's good people that don't return their trolleys and bad people that do. But it is funny when you think about the idea of doing anything that's truly other-centered, right? It's actually, it's actually quite difficult. Our motives are so often mixed in this. And yet Paul is saying here, um, we exist for other people. You notice how he's saying that? He's saying, like, I would actually let go of my freedoms, let go of what I can do for the sake of other people. Now, it might feel a little bit hypocritical here. It might feel like he's changing his stripes to gain something. But think about it. What, what's he gaining? He's already said he's not taking their money. He's not taking their status or the power. He doesn't want any of that. So he's actually not gaining anything. He's doing this out of love for other people. He's going towards other people. He's lifting his eyes to the people around him and loving them and moving towards them for the sake of winning them in the hope that they might see the good news of Jesus. Now, I, I do love this passage. It's a beautiful passage that captures what the church is meant to be all about. And, he, and here at Southside, we often use this illustration to describe really the heart of Paul when we use this illustration of a, a cruise ship and a lifeboat. And we do use it a lot, but it just captures what Paul's doing here. You see, sometimes people think about church as a cruise ship, you know, and you think about what's a cruise ship known for? Apart from COVID, a cruise ship is known for the holiday of your life, right? You go on a cruise ship and you pay your money, and everyone serves you and makes your life better, and the cruise ship is all about your own comfort. You know, you, you just want to cruise and chill and, and do nothing, and everyone serves you, and it's great. Uh, at times, we can think about church like a cruise ship, but, but church is not a cruise ship. It's a lifeboat. And when you think about a lifeboat, it's very different because it's not about comfort. It's about people, other people. 
And, and the idea is you move towards other people for the sake of helping them see the good news of Jesus because there's life where there's death and hope where there's despair. And so you go towards people. Now, let's think about how this played out for Paul. He's saying, to a Jew, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. Now, now what he's saying there is, um, you know, if you think about Jewish customs and stuff like that, he's saying, I'm not doing anything that hinders the message of Jesus. So, you know, it might, look like, um, it might look like this. So Jews would practice the Sabbath, which was Friday sundown to Saturday sundown. I think if Paul's hanging out with his Jewish friends, I don't think he's using his freedoms to work on Sabbath. I think he might actually withhold that for the sake of loving them to show them the good news of Jesus. Um, you think about some of the other Jewish laws and stuff like that. You know, uh, Jews often don't eat pig. Right, So I don't think if Paul's going over to brunch to his Jewish friend's house that he's taking bacon. Do you see? Like It's not changing his stripes. It's just loving people for the sake of not putting anything that would hinder the good news of Jesus. He says, to the Greeks, I became Greek. And here he's speaking about the people in Corinth, the people who would go to temples and, and all that sort of stuff. We've, we've, we've heard lots about Corinth. What Paul's saying here is that, that he goes towards them. Now, that doesn't mean he's sacrificing at the temple, but in the next chapter we will see, he says, if they invite you over to, food, uh, to a meal, eat their food. Right? So you, you get a sense here. He's becoming all things to all people. Now, he does say there, I'm still under the law of Christ. So he's saying, I'm not going to sin. I'm not going to abandon Jesus to reach people. But he is saying, I'm going to reach people and pursue people. To the weak, I became weak, he said. And, and that's not, not strong. You know, we often think gym or whatever. That's about conscience. So for someone who might have a problem eating certain food, he, he wouldn't eat that food because he doesn't want to hinder the good news of Jesus. All things to all people for the sake of, of reaching some and, and saving them. I think if Paul was around today, I think he might say to those at work, I went to work drinks, even though I hate work drinks. I think he might say to the soccer, at soccer, I, I became like people at soccer. I actually hung out and talked to people and sat next to people and, and asked them about their life. To those at school drop-off, I got out of my car and talked to people at school drop-off. To those at uni, I actually talked to the people I sit next to. To, to all people, I became all things for the sake of reaching them. I, I think what Paul's saying here is he, he lifts his eyes to the people around him and sees them as real people, and he loves them for where they're at, for the hope of showing them the good news of Jesus. And, and as a church, we too have to recognize this. We've got to get this deep into our hearts that the, the church is actually about other people. We want other people to know the good news of Jesus like we know the good news of Jesus because there's hope, there's life where there is death. And, and so we, again, need to think this through. There's an encouragement here, a deep encouragement as the church to, to be considering what are we doing to go towards other people? How are we caring about other people? Not just being self-centered, but taking the model that Jesus gave us where he went towards people. It is a beautiful message that Paul's giving us here to say that he's about other people. Now, first, you see the church is about Jesus. Second, about other people. There's one more in this passage. And we see this from the last verse, verses, which is this, church is about eternal life. So let's have a look at the last one here because it's, it's quite beautiful how he says this. He says, Do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last 
but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Do you see what Paul's speaking about here? He's saying we run towards an imperishable crown, something that will not fade. We know that the goal is eternal life. And, and since we know that heaven is real, since we get that there's more to life than what we see, he says we, we go towards this. Now, to help us here, what he does is he um, illustrates this and compares it to athletes. And it's quite fascinating why he does this. So to those running a race, it's quite fascinating why he does this. So um, let me explain. In, so we all know the Olympics, right? The Olympics are an ancient games. In fact, they happened in Olympia, which was uh, south of Corinth, about 37 hours south of Corinth. If you were to walk to the Olympics, you could have done that if you lived in Corinth. But every, uh, the opposite four years, you know, every other two years or whatever, like the Commonwealth Games that we have today, well, near Corinth, they had a games called the Ithmius Games, if I'm getting that name right. But th that's the games that they had every other second year. And there was these games, uh, these games took place in 51, the year 51, near Corinth. So Paul was a tent maker who made money by making tents because these people were gathering at Corinth when Paul was there. It's just like fascinating history, right? Like the Bible is not a, a dude's dream. This is grounded in real history. Paul's there while the Isthmus games are on. And so you can picture the hustle and bustle of town, you know, uh, the team buses driving through and all that sort of stuff. And uh, this, is, this is what Paul's having. Now, um, at the Isthmus games, you had chariot races, you had running races, um, you had wrestling, of course, boxing, even discus. This is what you had at these games. Now, what Paul's saying is, okay, you guys, you just saw the games, right? That's almost what he's saying. It's fresh in your mind. So it's almost like if you were coming to church this morning having watched the 100-meter final. You know, like if you got that in your mind. Or for me, when I think of the Olympics, it's, it's falling asleep on the couch watching red versus blue doing wrestling. I mean, I don't know what's happening, but I know red is versing blue when it matters to someone somewhere. And so he's saying, you got that fresh in your mind, the race or the event. Now, now he's speaking about this reality. He's saying, you know, those guys are so dedicated to that. They're devoted to that race. You know, you don't just turn up to a 100-meter final and win it. That takes your whole life being devoted to that race. Dedication, going to the gym, all that stuff, practice, all that stuff. Your whole life is about that race. And he says, they do that for a perishable crown. Now, literally, in the Isthmus Games, the crown was made out of celery. Uh, like, historically, that's the thing. Does that not blow your mind? Like, what do they do with that? Is it last three weeks? Do they get peanut butter as well? Do they, do they, they eat it? Like, wh what's the deal with that? But he's saying, guys, like, it's celery crown. And, and they live their whole lives for that to win that. Now, even if it's a gold medal, even if it's a trophy, we all know that there's a point in your life where you will make a move and not take your trophies with you. We all know that. But, but they live their whole life for this crown. And then, and then he says, so, so you see that image. You got that picture in your head. So, so what Paul's doing for us is he's saying, if they do that for a celery crown, right? If they're so devoted to a crown that's going to fade, how much more should we be devoted to an eternal crown, an imperishable crown? You know, like athletes live their whole life for something that's going to fade, 
how much more should we live for something that's not going to fade? And so the, the question then is, okay, so, so you see the logic. So the question is then, well, yeah, I guess that makes sense. If heaven is real, it should transform our lives. If heaven is real, then it would change the decisions that we make and, and everything that we do because it changes the goal. Which means the question that we've got to ask is, well, how do we know if heaven is real? If it's going to change everything, how do we know that it's true? Well, I think there's two ways that we know that, that eternal life is there. Heaven is there. The first is our experience, which tells us in part. The second is the evidence. But let's start with our experience. Have you ever had that sense that maybe there was something more? You know, like maybe we were made for more than just what's in front of us. You know, this week I came across this, um, this well, Rain Wilson. Do you know Rain Wilson? He's the guy out of the office, Dwight out of the office. Many people's favorite characters, arguably the best show of all time. Well, uh, Dwight, um, sorry, Rain Wilson, the real person, not the actor. So he said when he was 16 years of age, his dream was this. His dream was to live in New York City, to get paid as an actor, and to work with creative people. And he got that dream during the office. Um, you know, that was his perishable crown. He received it. Yet here's, as he was reflecting on his experience of receiving his dream, here's what he said. This is his quote. He said, uh, he said this, I was living my dream and I was miserable. Now, isn't that like fascinating that you can live your dream and be miserable? I don't know, I think that speaks to me a little bit, especially because for the majority of us, we're not, we're not actually living our dreams. Do you know what I mean? Like, we're working jobs to pay bills, to get to the weekend. The weekend fades, so we plan a holiday. The holiday happens. It's not as good as we expect, or even if it is, it still ends. We live in this reality where bad things happen. The best things end. Such is life. Well, well what if this was God writing into our experience that maybe you were made for something more? You know, I think we get glimpses of this with love and beauty and things like this. Maybe there's more to this than what we experience. I think our experience tells us in part that, that maybe there's, there's something more. But, but I think there's actually something else that tells us this, and it's the evidence. It's the evidence to do with Jesus' resurrection. Because here's the truth. If Jesus rose from the dead, what it does is it proves to us heaven is real. Right? Like if someone could go there and see it and come back, then it, it proves it. And, and in the book of Corinthians, Paul wants them to know that this really did happen. In fact, in chapter 15, you get a sense of this. In, in chapter 15, he says, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, where, where to be pitied? Because there's no resurrection. There is no heaven. And we're living for something that doesn't exist. But, but he wants them to know this. And you see this in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, where he says this. He says, I, for what I received, I passed on to your first importance, that Christ died according to Scriptures, that he was buried and raised according to Scriptures. And what he's saying in this moment is the Old Testament spoke about this. This is not an accident. The death and resurrection, it was prophesied about and then it happened. But then listen to this. He says this, And then he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the time, most of whom are still living, Though some have fallen asleep, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me. 
Now, do you see what Paul's doing in this moment? He's saying Jesus appeared to over 512 people. This was not an, a hallucination. This was not a dream. This did not happen in a back corner. He appeared to me, and you can chat to me about this. You can chat to the other 12 about this. There's 500 others that are still alive. You can chat to them about this as well. There is evidence towards this. Go and talk to them. Now, you look at that and you go, well, maybe the 512 were just lying about it. Maybe it was a hoax, right? Like, that could have happened, potentially, that they were just lying about it. However, when you look at the transformation of the disciples, what you see is something quite radical. You see, the disciples, the 12, these guys, when Jesus died and was buried, these guys were hanging out in a locked room. They were scared for their lives. Yet something transformed in them that they would go on and die for their faith. What was it that transformed for them? They said they saw Jesus. They moved from cowards to people that would take on the world and die for their faith. And so you look at that and you go, okay, so that's quite convincing when you see the transformation of the disciples. But, but it's more than that, right? Think about this. You don't die for a lie. So 11 out of the 12 died for their claim that Jesus rose from the dead. 11 out of 12, the 12th guy was sent to an island by himself. Now think about that reality. You don't think that if this was a lie, they would have said that when they were being killed? Right? Like Peter being crucified upside down. You don't think he would have stopped them and said, this was all a joke? Of course he would have. You don't die for a lie. They were convinced that Jesus rose from the dead. And there is evidence around this. Now, there's more evidence to this. We, this is something we talk at our Alpha course uh, that we run here at church, which is a chance to look at the evidence and ask your questions and all that sort of stuff. But there is convincing evidence that Jesus really did rise from the dead. And if he rose from the dead, do you see what it means? Heaven is real. There is eternal life. And if heaven's real, then it changes the goal. It moves the goalpost and it changes how we live our life and what we're devoted to. And, and this is what Paul says. This is why he does what he does. And this is what the church is here for. It, it, it's here because of the reality of eternal life. Because there is more to this life than what we see. Because 80 years is not all that we get. There is something else. And Jesus shows us how to get heaven. Now, as we see this, I think today, if you're a follower of Jesus, there is a deep encouragement here. If Southside is your home, if you're here because you believe in this stuff, this is a deep encouragement to you. It's a deep encouragement to me. It's a deep encouragement to us to keep going, you know, to, to keep pouring our lives out, to keep being devoted to this because the this is where we're going. This is the goal. This is what we're living towards. There's a deep encouragement here to remember this. It's about Jesus. It's about others. It's about eternal life. And, and this is just such a deep encouragement. What we do for Jesus is not in vain. But of course, if you're here today and you're not sure about Jesus, then we want to make it explicitly clear. We don't want your money. Church is not about your money. We want you to know that there is more to this life than what you see. That Jesus brings you life and hope, and assurance. And the good news of Jesus is the best thing ever. And, and we'd love to invite you to continue to explore this journey, to see, to ask your questions, and see this, because if heaven is real, if eternal life is the goal, if that's an actual thing, then it's worth exploring here and now to make sure that we know where we're going. Church is meant to be about Jesus, it's meant to be about others, and it's meant to be about eternal life. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the good news of Jesus. We thank you that there is peace, that there is hope, that there is assurance, that there is life on offer in Jesus. God, we pray that you would help us to see this. We pray that you would help us to understand this. And we pray, Lord, that we would recognize the goal and live for this goal. Help us, Lord, understand what we don't understand. Help us listen to what we need to listen to. And we pray that you would transform us and change us and help us in this reality as we live day to day, holding on to the hope, the good news of Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.